Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Hello, it's Friday, December 18th, and this is our last podcast for a tiny bit here while we all sail into the holidays and, in our case, start getting super high every night. Just kidding, Mom and Dad. Alex and I would never do that, even while we definitely fantasize about it. But on a serious note, we hope listeners have a happy and safe holiday. The COVID numbers are terrifying, aren't they? We just learned about 10 minutes ago that a friend tested positive, and we haven't seen her, but it does feel like a matter of time for all of us. And it is a very bad time to get sick, including here in California. As of yesterday, you might have read, the availability of ICU beds in Southern California hit 0%, which is very hard to process. Meanwhile, up here in the Bay Area, ICU ICU bed availability just dipped below 15%, triggering a stay-at-home order for the foreseeable future. The juxtaposition between what's happening out there and what's happening in the newsletter and the rest of the tech world is pretty intense. In fact, while the nation has been seeing a record number of deaths daily from COVID, in Silicon Valley, we just had another week crammed full of funding announcements and IPOs and plans for upcoming IPOs. A certain cryptocurrency is also having a very good week. Let's dive in. Bitcoin has been on a tear. At press time, the price of BTC had risen 25% over the last seven days. Industry analysts attribute Bitcoin's rising fortunes to the increasing willingness of large institutions to buy up the currency. What we're seeing is an entire class of investors who are new to the crypto market and want to establish positions, Matthew Hoogan, chief investment officer at Bitwise Asset Management, told Coindesk. They are not so much buying the dip as simply buying consistently and over time. To that end, insurance giant MassMutual recently unveiled a $100 million Bitcoin investment. While MassMutual said that the investment gives it a, quote, measured yet meaningful exposure to a growing economic aspect of our increasingly digital world, some public companies are changing their entire corporate strategy to focus on Bitcoin. MicroStrategy, the publicly listed enterprise software vendor, has been particularly bullish on the coin. With its core business facing its sixth straight year of revenue decline, the company decided to pivot into the business of Bitcoin. Since August, it has purchased $475 million of Bitcoin, a position that is now worth over $940 million. In a certain sense, the change in strategy has paid off, even though MicroStrategy's Bitcoin portfolio only increased by $467 million, its market cap has soared by $1.5 billion. Recently, the company announced an offering of $650 million in unsecured convertible senior notes intended to finance the purchase of more Bitcoin. But why should investors buy MicroStrategy stock and pay a premium for its Bitcoin position when they can just buy Bitcoin themselves? MicroStrategy's approach should provide an interesting window into how far public companies dare venture into the Bitcoin realm. One story I found interesting this week centers on AutoLeap, a six-month-old startup that has raised $5 million in seed funding led by Threshold Ventures to modernize car repair shops. There is definitely an enormous need for these largely small, independently run outfits to be brought up to speed. If you have been to the mechanic ever, you've seen the crazy paperwork and the chaos, and that hasn't gone away over the years, which probably explains why there are a growing number of startups focused on this opportunity. There's a five-year-old Seattle-based outfit, Wrench, that already 
raised $40 million. Another startup, RepairSmith, is backed by Daimler and brings the mechanic to you. There's another startup in the budding on-demand auto repair market called Your Mechanic that has raised $40 million from Andreessen Horowitz, Verizon Ventures, and others. But what intrigued me especially about AutoLeap was its founders and their last business, which was a SaaS company that helps contractors run their small businesses and that they later sold to the private equity firm Advent. They didn't launch the company. Instead, they bought it using a search fund, which is a kind of vehicle that's backed by individual investors who bet on a team to find a company, buy it, run it for some period of time, then sell it for more money. It didn't make it into the story, but I spent quite a while talking with AutoLeap's co-CEO, Steve Lau, about search funds, and apparently they have far better returns than either hedge funds or venture funds. In fact, Stanford's Center for Entrepreneurial Studies analyzed 400 search funds that date back to the founding of this idea in 1984, and they found that the aggregate pre-tax IRR, or internal rate of return, was 32.6%. And the aggregate pre-tax return on invested capital was 5.5x. You see a lot of MBAs trying to raise these things. There are also similarities with today's SPACs, or special purpose acquisition companies. For one thing, you're raising money before you have a target in mind. Also, a fund may or may not find a target. And if the operating managers don't find a company to invest in, the investors don't make a capital contribution and the fund is dissolved. From what I understand, search funds typically target companies in the $5 million to $30 million price range. You're also, unsurprisingly, looking for a company that's been undermanaged with a history of stable cash flow and so forth. The concept was first introduced by a Stanford professor who now happens to be an owner of the Boston Celtics, Irv Grausbeck, and I'm now curious why we're not seeing more of these if they've just managed to escape our radar. Certainly, we're going to be paying closer attention going forward. Last, it was a busy week on the IPO slash SPAC front. For one thing, the merger of Opendoor, the real estate tech startup, with social capital Sophia, was approved. This is the second blank check company associated with investor Chamath Palahapatiya. And now that the deal has gotten the blessing of regulators, Opendoor will begin trading this coming Monday, December 21st. We also saw another startup, BarkBox, an eight-year-old subscription pet food company, agree to its own reverse merger with a SPAC called Northern Star Acquisition Corp., which is run in part by Joanna Coles, who was most recently the chief content officer for Hearst Magazines. That deal seeks to capitalize on a pandemic-fueled rise in pet adoptions and pet-related spending, something some of you can probably relate to. We also had companies announce this week that they've confidentially filed to go public. The cryptocurrency exchange Coinbase being one, and UiPath, a very buzzy robotic process automation startup, being another. UiPath has been valued by its investors at around $10 billion, and I imagine this will be a very hot, in quotes, offering when it does go out as robotic process automation, where companies are using tech to streamline enterprise operations and reduce costs, is a huge trend, and UiPath is at the forefront of it. Not last, we saw a couple of notable companies go public, including the e-commerce marketplace Wish, which priced its shares at $24 a piece, where they have mostly hovered after slipping a bit after its debut. And Upstart, a lending firm started by a former Google exec that saw its shares soar in their debut. Investors were definitely less enthusiastic than they were over Airbnb and DoorDash, whose offerings performed better than their own founders ever imagined possible last week. But It's clear there is still a lot of appetite for new offerings and that people are buying what the tech world is selling. Up next, our interview with Justin Fishner-Wolfson, founder and managing partner of 137 Ventures, which buys secondary stakes and makes direct investments in companies like Airbnb, Palantir, and Wish. 
Previously, Justin worked on the investment team at Founders Fund. But first, a word from our sponsor. It's no secret that tax laws may change under the incoming Biden administration. Acuity Realty, which develops multifamily and office developments with project partners like Apple and Cigna Realty Advisors, can help. Acuity is currently developing a qualified opportunity zone project just two blocks away from Google's new 80-acre campus in San Jose, and it is looking for individuals and institutions that are interested in growing their capital in a tax-efficient manner. Acuity has a long background in producing significant returns for investors. Over its last $1.2 billion worth of projects, it has generated an IRR of 49.9%. If you are interested in learning more about how you could possibly reduce your tax exposure from capital gains, or you just want to diversify your portfolio, please visit acuityrealty.com, that's A-C-Q-U-I-T-Y realty.com, or email Greg Ovalle at ov at acuityrealty.com. Today, we are joined by Justin Fishner-Wolfson, co-founder and managing partner of 137 Ventures, a growth stage venture fund founded in San Francisco in 2011, which has more than a billion dollars in assets under management. Before starting the firm, Justin worked with Peter Thiel at Founders Fund, which is where I think I first met you, Justin, maybe around a decade ago. Do you mind just taking us back to that time to start with how you landed at Founders Fund, what life was like there, and why you decided to leave to do your own thing? Sure. Well, let me just start by saying thank you for having me on. 10 years ago sounds about right, because that is approximately when I left to start 137 Ventures. I met Peter back in in 2006. He went to Stanford. I went to Stanford, slightly different years, but that was a network that originally connected us. And I joined Founders Fund back in 2007 because that was a transition point where I think Peter wanted to run a real venture business. And so when I joined, we raised Founders Fund 2, which was the first institutional fund I ended up being integral to that fundraising effort and brought in one of the largest LPs who ended up anchoring that fund. And really, Founders Fund was an incredible place to join, right? It was new. There weren't that many people. I was on the investment team. There were really only five of us back then. It was Peter, Ken, Luke, and Sean, and myself. So it was really this incredible opportunity to do everything. And I think Peter has been very successful in if I would say so, hiring smart people and letting them do stuff and seeing what happens. And so I got to see the whole business. I led the SpaceX investment back when I was there, which obviously has been incredibly successful. Yeah, actually, can you pause on that for a second? So that's really interesting. Tell me about that because obviously Peter and Elon Musk had known each other from PayPal and then you cultivated a relationship with Elon or you were maybe tracking that industry or how did that happen? Well, I mean, it's a long story. So it's a question of like how much detail one really cares about. But I mean, the short version was, yes, Elon and Peter knew each other very well from the PayPal days, but there were two sides of the PayPal story, right? There was the X.com side from Elon, and then there was the PayPal side that was all the guys who were founders fund, of which Peter obviously was the CEO of PayPal for a long time. And so there had been a longstanding relationship, but in many respects, people weren't really that close on either side. And so Elon had this vaguely crazy idea of starting a rocket company. He put a lot of his own money into it. And based on some of the contracts that he had with NASA, there was a large incentive to raise outside dollars. I think the easy thing for him to do was to ask Peter for a little bit of money because that met some milestones for NASA and unlock other dollars that would help fund the company. 
And what really happened was I got involved in the process and helped drive a much larger investment in the company that ultimately became one of the largest positions across all of Founders Fund. It wasn't that I knew Elon from beforehand, it's that I really helped drive that investment process and ultimately I think make it, you know, what would have otherwise probably been like a $5 million check ended up being, gosh, it was a 20% position approximately in Founders Fund 2 and it's continued to be a large position across other funds as well. What made you have so much confidence in an investment that could theoretically blow up on the lunch bed? It really was this belief that in many respects, SpaceX wasn't doing anything that hadn't been done before. I mean, we, we knew how to send rockets into space from the 60s, right? I mean, like it wasn't like we didn't have the technology. The thing that no one had really done was commercialize it. And, and Elon had a view that if you take an airplane and you fly it from LA to New York, and you blow it up on the other side, it turns out airline tickets are really expensive, right? And instead, what we figured out with planes is that you make them reusable and that you only actually have to pay for the gas to get you from LA to New York. And that drives down the cost in an incredible way, which opens up all sorts of other business opportunities. And so like the core bet at SpaceX was mostly that at a minimum, they could always build the old version of the rockets. Most of the industry was on a cost plus model with the government. So they didn't really care about reducing the cost. In fact, the higher the costs were, the more money they would make, even though it was a fixed percentage, right? And so Elon came in, had this concept of let's make it a fixed price business and we'll figure out how to cut the cost. And the main way that they would do that was through reusability. And that seemed like an, an incredibly straightforward, though very technically challenging thing to do. And the general belief was if you believe that Elon and his team would have time to build it, they would eventually figure this out. It wasn't that it was impossible to do. You just had to have the time. And the time is mostly having access to capital. So that way you can figure out the problems. The first investment was after the second failed launch of the Falcon 1. And then the third launch of the Falcon 1 was not successful, but it was not successful for a very easy to fix way. And then the fourth launch was successful. And so we got in maybe a little early, but ultimately everything worked out quite well. Super interesting. So you're there, you made this big bet or you pushed the firm to make a bigger bet and you're on this core team, which is interesting how Founders Fund has endured and done so well. And actually that team is completely, other than Peter, changed. I don't think any of those guys that you were working with initially are there now. And then at some point you decide to strike out on your own. What drove that decision? I mean, a lot of it was I had friends from college who all ended up at Facebook. And if you rewind the clock to 2010, 2011, Facebook was a really big company. In fact, it was probably the biggest company in the private markets ever. They'd done that round with Goldman at 50 billion. A lot of people had a lot of wealth on paper, but no actual money. And people just have life events, right? They get married, they have kids, all sorts of things that drive them to want to do things like buy a house or whatnot. And they just didn't have any actual money to do those things. And I got a lot of calls from college friends saying, hey, do you know anyone who will lend me some money because I want to buy a house? And I didn't. And I, I figured someone would be in this business. And I called the banks and I called the venture debt firms. And not only was nobody in the business, nobody really wanted to be in the business because I couldn't just refer them to someone. And I'd gone through a couple institutional fundraisers at Founders Fund. I think with the benefit of hindsight, I thought I knew better than I actually did, but we made it all work. And I figured this was going to be a really large market opportunity because Facebook wasn't an anomaly. It was a start of this longer trend of companies staying private for extended periods of time. And if that was going to be the case, then all of the founders and executives at these companies were going to ultimately have life events, which would cause them to want liquidity. And I figured, 
well, no one's doing this. We might as well go start a fund in that area. And while we certainly had arguments with investors at the beginning of whether or not this was really a trend, these days, no one questions whether or not companies are going to be private for an extended period of time. Well, Justin, in fairness, there were companies that were doing this, like Shares Post, and I can't remember, what, what did Barry's? What was- Second Market. Second market, right, right. So, but I think Facebook changed people's opinions of secondary sales, maybe. I feel like before Facebook came along, it was like this practice that had this stigma to it. And then suddenly it didn't. But it sounds like you had the right connections too, maybe that those firms didn't have. Well, keep in mind that shares post in second market broadly speaking, are just brokers, right? I mean, second market was trying to create a marketplace, which ultimately got bought by NASDAQ and whatnot, and has more or less just become a software platform today. But they were really trying to connect people with other people who had capital to invest. So they were, in many respects, middlemen. You could put them in the same general industry as us, but not in the same business at all, right? In some sense, they would just connect people with us. Right. And you were giving them money and you were hanging on to the shares and you're saying that wasn't around. Broadly speaking, no, it's not like there'd never been a secondary transaction in the history of the Valley before us, but it's just that the size and scope really changed with Facebook. The way companies think about it changed from companies having a right of first refusal on share transfers to having blanket transfer restrictions because it ultimately became such a burden on Facebook to manage all of this stuff. So a lot of things changed with Facebook. It really was a transformational company in a lot of ways for the industry. Because of everything that happened with Facebook, it's become more difficult to do a lot of those transactions. Is that right? I think the answer to that is yes and no. Yes, in the sense that companies have implemented blanket transfer restrictions so that you can't really do anything at all. But that's really just a factor of, do you have relationships with companies? And if you have relationships, then it's really not a problem at all, right? So if you don't have the right networks and you're not perceived as a good long-term player in the ecosystem, I think it's very hard. I think if you are, it's relatively speaking easy. Does that sound equitable to you, though, that somebody who wants to sell their shares has to go through somebody who's approved by the company? The details matter. I think if companies simply block all transfers to anyone for any reason, I think that that creates real problems for people that I don't think are in the best interest, quite frankly, of the company itself. But I do think that companies have legitimate business reasons to want to pick who their investors are and who they wish to share information those are literally the two biggest benefits of being a private company is not having to share your information with the public and being able to choose who your investors are. And I think a lot of the great entrepreneurs are focused on very long-term goals. And so I think it's totally reasonable for them to want long-term investors. And price is something that matters, but is not the number one issue that people focus on. I mean, I think people take money from a lot of great firms, Benchmark, Sequoia, at lower prices than they might be able to get from other people. And yet, no one thinks that's a bad idea. Justin, tell me a little bit about putting together this fund, which I definitely wanted to know more about how the whole thing operates. So you mentioned that you brought an LP to Founders Fund. Did that LP stake you in 137? Can you talk about your investor base? Also, did Founders Fund or Peter become an LP? I think a lot of LPs prefer to be LPs and not be public about these sorts of things. But certainly to answer your question in a general sense, right, our LP base is really a mix of university endowments, foundations, and a handful of very large family offices. It's a very similar mix of investors that you would see at Founders Fund or other venture firms. Tell us how it works, because you do have a pretty impressive portfolio that you've assembled. I want to know everything. (laughs) How, How do you screen for companies is maybe the first question. Yeah. I mean, I think we have a view about how companies stay relevant over very long periods of time. And I think you need to have a defensible business model for that to be true. 
And so if you look across the portfolio, like it's in a lot of different sectors. SpaceX is obviously a very different company than Flexport or Gusto, right? They're totally different industries. But we think that there are things like network effects and marketplace dynamics, which would be true of our portfolio companies like Airbnb or RigUp, right? Those are, those are marketplace sorts of businesses or companies that have information asymmetries. So they're using data in smart ways to help benefit all their customers like Palantir. Or you look for companies that have real economies of scale and you can look to SpaceX again. They're vertically integrated. They've levered on top of their launch business, their Starlink business. That vertical integration is super valuable in that context. So I think we're looking for companies that can build truly defensible business models. The thing about venture, which I think people occasionally forget, is you don't really get to control your duration. And so you want to be comfortable being an investor in that company for three years or seven years or, quite frankly, 15 years. <laughs> and and that's and that's something that you really need to think about. Right, right. Well, SpaceX especially. So I did want to ask to pull the covers back a little bit more. You mentioned Airbnb. You also were an investor in Palantir and Wish. So three big IPOs this fall. Can you walk us through how you got into these deals and when? Maybe starting with Wish since it's in the headlines this week. Yeah, I mean, we've been investors in Wish, I think going back to 2015, might be 14. It's been a long time. And I think the company has really scaled the business in an incredible way. They've branched out into very interesting product lines from an operational standpoint, their whole in-store pickup business. It's really just been incredible to watch. It's amazing how fast things change. Did you have to form a relationship with Peter, the co-founder and CEO, in order to be on the radar, make sure that when they were going to allow employees to sell, that you would be one of the people to whom they would sell? Oh, sure. I mean, in all the companies across the entire portfolio, we try to have good relationships with the founders. And most of the time, the founders are also the executives at the company because it's a long-term business and we want to have good relationships with people. And quite frankly, they all talk to each other. And so when founders are talking to other founders, we want to be top of mind in making sure that people think about us as good long-term partners. Just a mechanical question. Do you make a direct investment in a company and then essentially get the secondary business from that company? The answer is it could be, it might not be. Like we've done it in all directions. So most of what we do is helping founders and executives with liquidity, but we also do some direct primary investing as well. We, we try not to be too dogmatic about how we're investing in the kinds of companies that we're excited about. But I do think that the strategy that we have around helping founders and executives is different from a lot of the other people in the ecosystem. So if you're trying to go raise a series B or series C, there's a million people you can go talk to. If you're trying to get liquidity, if you're trying to do something structured, we're amongst a very small group of people that you would end up dealing with. So are direct investments a minority of the investments that you do in terms of capital? What percentage of capital goes to direct investments versus secondary investments? Direct investments, off the top of my head, 20, maybe 30% thing, right? So it's, it's not trivial, but it's by no means the majority of what we do. Also, Justin, you mentioned that you pushed Founders Fund to invest 20% of that second fund in SpaceX. How do you think about assembling your portfolio now? Again, some big names in there. I would assume that given the opportunity, you would try to take as big a bite of some of these companies as you could. So do you max out at a certain point? Do you only want 10% of the fund in a certain company? Or will you put the pedal to the metal when you can? I mean, I think that we want to have a relatively concentrated portfolio at the end of the day, there's a lot of value in diversifying from one company to two companies in a portfolio. There's a lot less value in going from 99 to 100. And so you need a relatively concentrated portfolio to drive venture returns. That being said, 
10 companies, a dozen companies. That's the number of companies we're looking for on a fund basis to have some good level of diversification, but then also be able to drive real fund multiples. And can I also ask about Airbnb? So Airbnb was under some pressure to go public this year. At what point did you assemble your stake in Airbnb? And also, was that an ongoing thing? We've been investors in Airbnb. Gosh, it probably goes back to 2015. Actually, it's probably about the same time as Wish. Some of the issues that Airbnb had was around RSUs and things like that that other companies have now run into. So, So sometimes you find out that a lot of stuff ends up being structural, right? It's not is the company big enough to go public? Do they want to go public? Occasionally people make decisions that ultimately create very strong incentives to do things at specific moments in time. And so I think that was part of what was driving the process at Airbnb. And I think other companies have also experienced this as well. It drives companies to go public. And for what it's worth, I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand the history of RSUs and why they were created and the issues that come along with it. I mean, they were actually originally created at Facebook. Do you remember this whole 500 shareholder count rule? Uh-huh. Yeah. So, so like back then, if you had over 500 shareholders, you had to publicly report. And this was a huge problem. It basically forced companies to go public. What happened at Facebook was they got the SEC to agree that if you had RSU holders, it was like a different category. And so therefore, they didn't have to publicly report when they hit 500 shareholders. It was the Jobs Act that changed all the rules and made it like 2,000 shareholders, but they changed all the exclusions. So it was very hard to hit. And so it really got rid of the whole reason why Facebook created RSUs, right? The impetus behind the RSUs went away, but companies continue to use them. There's some reasons why RSUs, I understand why they're attractive, but it really does limit you in ways that have turned out to be a problem, especially as companies stay private for much longer periods of time because they end up expiring. And everyone gets very upset if huge amounts of their equity expires and you could have taken the company public, right? That's a real problem for your employee base. This is a stupid question, but how does that impact you then if you're working with these versus other types of options? In reality, we really can't do anything, nor can anybody else with RSUs. They're really just from a structural perspective, restrictive. They have relatively poor tax treatment. They expire. You can't get people interim liquidity. There's just a lot of issues with them. Like all the tender offers that have allowed SpaceX to be a private company and still provide liquidity for employees wouldn't really be possible with RSUs. So I I actually think they really restrict companies' flexibility. This is a little bit in the weeds, but companies can't just reissue a new type of security in place of the RSU because it would trigger some 409A event. There's just a bunch of tax complications that come along with it because rightfully, I think the IRS doesn't want you to just keep rolling things in ways that would provide, it would allow people to run a truck through those sorts of things. So I think they do not want people to be able to do what you're suggesting. I mean, for what it's worth, options also expire after 10 years. That's an IRS thing as well, right? It's just that there are easier ways to deal with them than there are with RSUs. You know, um, has it impacted you, you know, as these companies have kind of allowed their um, employees, you know, Pinterest had done this, Airbnb had done this. I think at some point Uber felt pressured to do this, just giving them a longer window in which to exercise their options. How has that impacted your work, if at all? I think that's a really positive trend. My view is that there's a social contract, if not an actual contract between companies and their employees, that if you work at a company for some number of years, that you get to keep your equity. And in the old days, you you left the company, you had 90 days to exercise your options or you lost. Crazy, isn't it? It's totally antithetical to the social contract that we have. People have tried various different strategies, but the simplest one is just giving people the full 10 years that the options allow. I I think is really positive. I'm not sure the majority of companies have switched over, but at least it's a large plurality of companies have moved towards this. In terms of our business, it's certainly stopped the desperate calls from people who have huge amounts of 
equity that's about to expire, which I'm totally happy to not get those phone calls because I feel terrible for people who are in that situation. So I think that's a good thing. Other than that, it hasn't really, I think, impacted us in a meaningful way. Most of the time we're dealing with senior folks who didn't used to have these sorts of timelines anyway. Okay, great. You know, so Justin, speaking of the companies that have gone public, Palantir, Airbnb, especially have done well so far. Wish dropped on its debut yesterday. What do you make of of the IPO? I mean, it's, it, I, th- I see it's sort of ticking back up to um, its offering price today. I'm just wondering, it's obviously kind of anomalous in that it didn't go crazy. I'm wondering what you make of that, if you think the investment community understands this company. I mean, I think it takes the investment community a long time to understand any newly public company. At the end of the day, the IPO is ultimately just a day, right? And what really matters is how companies perform over the next 10 or 20 years. And I would look at Microsoft or Amazon or more recently, Facebook, their IPO more or less went straight down. I think that dropped 50% in the next following week or two. I think it hit $18 at one point, which is incredible to think about now. Right. I mean, and, and obviously Facebook has gone on to be an incredible business. So in all honesty, I have no idea what the market's going to do tomorrow. I don't know what's going to do the day after at a macro level or on any individual company. But over a decade, if you can really build a great sustainable business that compounds, it all comes out in the wash, right? And I think Wish has done an incredible job of scaling the business. I think Peter is one of the best operators I've met in this industry. And they've done a lot of innovative things just in terms of mobile, right? I mean, they're really very few interesting mobile shopping experiences, what they've done in terms of browsing versus just people searching for a serial number like they do on Amazon and then buying that product. There's a lot more discovery on the Wish platform. And the whole in-store pickup has been a really innovative way to do it, help consumers get products quickly in an asset light way where you don't need to buy millions and millions of square feet of warehouses. And so just to be clear about that, because I had actually written about Wish recently and told people about this in case that they don't know, what you're referring to is uh, it started partnering with these mom and pop shops in the US and Europe, I guess. And so people who have extra storage space will now take receipt of Wish goods and it gives them a little bit more foot traffic and people come in to pick up their items and then, of course, it helps with the, the logistics. They're getting a lot closer to their customer. It's good for the shop owners because their people will maybe shop as they're at the store. And that's a big shift from how Wish used to operate, which was with this partnership with the USPS, which was very economical. And those economics have changed. Is that right, Justin? I think with respect to all the in-store pickup things, you're 100% correct. They're basically helping small, medium-sized businesses drive foot traffic, which is always valuable. I think in the current environment, it's going to become even more important to these sorts of businesses. They're helping those businesses leverage the data they have across their entire platform with what merchandising they can do because Wish understands what consumers in that geography are looking for, and they can help those businesses merchandise better. And then ultimately, because they're shipping product to one location, they're aggregating orders from a whole bunch of people who don't know each other. And that reduces logistics and shipping time and costs. And so they can send that stuff and it's much easier for the consumer to walk or drive five or 10, 15 minutes and go pick it up. And so it allows them to focus on the value conscious consumers who are willing to trade a little bit of time for a much better price on things. So I used Wish a couple of years ago, and I primarily remember it as a place where you could get tchotchkes from China. And it seems now that it's trying to sell more mainstream goods. How does Wish go about changing the perception that it has in the marketplace? I think if you go look at people who are active customers on Wish, Wish has a huge community around fishing. 
if you don't fish, there's no reason why you would necessarily know that. And one of the largest sections is refurbished electronics on Wish. They make up a relatively small percentage of global e-commerce, even though they're one of the largest e-commerce marketplaces in the world. So I'm not sure they need to do a whole lot to change that perception because I still think they haven't penetrated the market as a whole, right? So there are lots of people who don't even know about them, quite frankly. And as you watch the marketplace evolve, they get more and more data back from customers about both the merchant and the quality of the merchandise and all of the, those sorts of things that just feeds back into this very powerful system where they can leverage the data to improve product quality and to make sure that they're selling what people want. And you saw this with Airbnb too, right? Like the second that the pandemic came around, consumer behavior and consumer preferences changed a lot. And if you think about holding inventory, you now have to be concerned that what you bought isn't what consumers want. Well, Wish is operating a giant marketplace, so they don't actually hold a lot of inventory in that regard. And so all they need to do is make sure that they have lots of merchants on there who have whatever consumers are looking for. And then consumer behavior will drive which merchants are ultimately monetizing that interest. But Wish doesn't have to worry about holding lots of inventory. I think it, Wish is so interesting in that regard. It's so asset light compared to Amazon, which is exactly the opposite. But of course, you mentioned quality. And I wonder if that explains the company's uneven revenue. So what was growing like 57% in 2018, slowed to 10% in 2019, picked up 32% in the first nine months of this year. A lot of e-commerce picked up. Why do you think it's been topsy-turvy like that? I think this is really looking at the numbers behind the numbers. And this is true of all businesses. And actually, you've seen this with Amazon, right? They go through these cycles of growth and then focusing on efficiency. And so if you just focus on growth, you tend to grow and then break things and then do things in relatively inefficient ways. And then ultimately, you need to turn around and focus on how do you drive operational efficiencies. And so I think the cycles that you're describing at top level, if you look at the underlying metrics, you know, show a real improvement in operating efficiency. It's really just the cycles that if you're running a business, you have to go through. Justin, I also wondered what you think of Roblox and Affirm delaying their IPOs. So Wish barreled forward. These guys did not. What do you think of that? And do you think we'll see more delays? I don't know why people would necessarily delay for extended periods of time. I, I suspect you'll see Roblox and Affirm go public probably early next year. The markets are definitely volatile in a way that they weren't necessarily a few years ago. Pick any of your stocks, right? I mean, they go up or down by, especially in the tech space, double digits every day. So I think there's a fair amount of uncertainty about what things are exactly worth. You really, at some point, just got to choose whether or not you want to be a public company and you're going to take the good and the bad that comes along with that. There's a lot of good. There's certainly some annoyances. One of those things is volatility. So you just got to actually get out the door at some point. Imram Khan told CNBC on Tuesday that the recent post-IPO stock pops, including those of Airbnb and DoorDash, represent an epic level of incompetency from the bankers who underwrote the stocks. Do you believe it was incompetency on the part of the bankers or just market volatility that caused those stocks to pop as high as they did? I think no one actually knows the answer to that question. It makes for a good soundbite. I don't think that what the price is on the first day is a meaningful indicator of anything. And there are massive differences between trying to sell $3 billion worth of stock versus one share of stock that would obviously lead to different pricing of those sorts of things. I also think that when the private markets, people very much believe that you should pick your investors and that that matters to the long-term prospects of the business. And yet there seems to be this narrative in the public markets that that doesn't matter at all and you should just optimize for price. If you look at some of the comments the CEO of DoorDash made, they had a view that 
it didn't matter exactly what the maximum price is. It mattered who was a partner for the business over the long term and that they picked the sorts of investors that they wanted. I, I think focusing on the first day just creates a lot of noise. And it's better to look at what the business is ultimately end up being worth over at least some window of time. The, the first day is a very, very narrow perspective. Either way, the feverish embrace of these companies must be driving prices in the secondary market higher and higher. Is that something that you're seeing? It really does matter what the public prices are that ultimately trickles into the private markets and, and also vice versa. I mean, at, at some point, things can't have massive differences in value between their private market valuations and their public market valuations. So you definitely see multiples shift as the market shift. But these things are often averages. And I think people focus on one company or one example of these things without necessarily looking at all the companies, because that would be quite difficult. And people are lazy. And that is also true. <laughs> so it's like, there's always examples of things that are overpriced. There's also examples of things that are underpriced. And that may average out to a number that people think is high or low. But broadly speaking, anything with an average, you're going to have numbers above it and you're going to have numbers below it. So as an investor, you want to certainly try to invest more of your money in the good companies that are on the lower end of that spectrum. But the focus is always on good companies. And if you can find companies that are going to compound over long periods of time, as long as you're not too crazy on multiples or valuations, you end up being in a good spot. So Justin, I, I feel like we've kept you long enough. I want to let you go. But before I do, I have to ask, can you tell us about your most recent investment or two? Yeah. I mean, I, I got to think about what what we've actually made public. Get public now. <laughs> we'll, <laughs> come on. We'll, we'll make news on the air. Is that the... Uh, <laughs> I guess that's a reasonable thing. I mean, look, I, I'm not sure we've really talked about it, but we made an investment in a company called Lattice. It's an enterprise SaaS company run by Jack Altman. Right. And they're in the HR space. And they're just building a really great business. It's very important to help with employee engagement and performance, especially now that there's this whole dynamic of work from home. And so making sure that your employees feel engaged, feel part of the team, can understand the company culture, and that you can help them build their careers over time, I think is just going to become more and more important. So it was always going to be a good business, but it's certainly, I think, in the right intersection of things given the current environment that hopefully we're getting out of in the next 12 months or so. But I think these trends are just going to continue to accelerate. Justin, that one's on your homepage. So we have to ask, are there any other ones that you can... <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're, you're, checking, you're checking the website. I'm not even checking the website. Um, we, we made an investment in a company called SnapDocs. So that so is that one on the website? It's, 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 <laughs> I don't know. Alex is... Uh, Alex we're scrolling, is scrolling now. <laughs> uh, okay. All right, let me know. I don't think so. Okay. All right. All right. So, so you, you got something out of me, I guess. Um, so yeah, that's another company that's an enterprise company where they're really helping to automate the home closing process. Same dynamic that I think has really benefited from the current environment that you don't really want to have to go to an office, sign a stack full of papers, possibly make mistakes deal with notaries in person. All of these sorts of things really can and should be automated or at least made easy to do remotely. It's an old industry. It takes time to get people to buy in. And I think Aaron, who's the founder and CEO of the company, has done really a, a fantastic job of building a product that people are willing to adopt. Also, this is the right moment in time for that growth to really accelerate. So they've been having a good year. That's great. And Justin, because we do have VCs who listen to this, founders, but also institutional investors, I know that you closed a fund last year. Are you thinking about raising another one in, in 2021? 
there are lots of rules around talking and fundraising and whatnot. So I, I think you'll get the standard no common answer for me on that. Before we let you go, as we near the end of 2020, any parting thoughts about the year in venture? Any predictions for next year? I understand this is a very narrow view of the world, but I, I think this has been a, a pretty good year for technology and technology companies in general, mostly because all of the trends that I think would have otherwise taken five to 10 years have all been compressed into six to 12 months. And, and I think that trend is going to continue into 2021, that a lot of the consumer behaviors that people have adopted are going to stick around in terms of more shopping online and doing things remotely, whether or not it's closing a home or all of this stuff, right? And and so I think that we're going to see all the things that people believe were going to take 10 years happen in much shorter periods of time over the next 12, 24 months. And I think that's exciting. You're just seeing the future show up faster. Justin, thank you so much for your time. Really nice to reconnect with you. It's been too long. No, absolutely. It was great to talk to both you and yeah, we'll do it again in less than 10 years. <laughs> I'd love that. Take care. Thanks, everybody. And a word to 2020. Don't let the door hit your butt on the way out. <laughs> I think we can all agree with that statement. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening this year. We hope you have very happy holidays, a wonderful new year, and we will see you back here the first week of January.